Research and grains have had a wonderful relationship. We've, um, when I say grains, that's your major grain companies, your major grain handlers and marketers. Uh, we've supported stored product protection research for over three decades, probably four in fact. Um, we have co-developed a whole series of really good outcomes. Our stakeholders traditionally have been uh, state-based departments of ag and during a, um, I guess, a halcyon period from the early 70s to when it closed in 2006, we partnered with the Stored Grain Research Laboratory, which was part of CSIRO. I was talking to John Goulding from New South Wales Ag um, at uh, Tullamarine yesterday. He was saying to me, how come you grains guys sort of seem to have your act together regarding research and cooperation with various stakeholders, be they regulators, be they researchers, um, be they other industry participants? I said, it's probably come from the fact that we've come from a regulated industry where everyone knew their place. So a grain handler knew their place, a marketer knew their place, a researcher knew their place, railways knew their places. Everyone knew their places. And everyone was happy to, I guess, um, participate in funding for research in whatever field uh, was because it was of benefit to the broader industry. Okay, a few things have happened. In 1989, the wheat market in New South Wales was um, uh, deregulated, so you could sell wheat domestically. Soon after that, other grains, uh, such as barley, sorghum, oats, etc., those statutory boards were also deregulated um, around that period and into the early 90s. Very importantly, the single desk for wheat exports was regulated um, a few years ago. Uh, in the wake of the, um, uh, how do I delicately put this? Um, in the wake of the demise of AWB. Nonetheless, um, from a, I guess, a, a research aspect, Brains, as it were, has taken a, I guess, a, a pre-competitive approach to research. We understand what's important from West Australia to the East Coast and all parts in between. Also, we have the privilege of partnering with GRDC, and so you've got four major grain entities that are funding research via PBCRC. And, <coughs> pardon me, what I'm saying is we've had a long history of doing this. We've uh, always had pretty good cooperation, and we've had some wonderful historic research outcomes. I'm citing a couple of them. Bunker fumigations. As most of you would know, most grain is stored in bunkers. For those of you who may not know, a bunker is a plastic tarpaulin. It's a plastic tarpaulin with a sheet on the bottom, a sheet on the top, and with your grain sandwiched in between. These can be quite large, up to 50,000 tonnes is quite common. Uh, so, you've got the grain in there, how are you going to kill the bugs in there? So one of the early and most brilliant um, research outcome was being able to fumigate in bunkers because it's a cheap storage and it's an effective storage 
and when you can kill bugs, it makes it even better. Development of inert atmospheres, nitrogen and CO2. BrainCorp um, has the largest um, nitrogen treatment facility in the world at uh, Newcastle. Uh, we co-developed that with, with um, Stored Grain Research Laboratory. Uh, I'm very proud to say that uh, I worked along the, alongside the scientists to, um, to get that up and it is just part of our uh, everyday infrastructure. Development of sealed storages. Everyone knows that you have to have a sealed storage to have an effective fumigation. These storages um, are important for bulk handling companies and, of course, for the farm. Development of Syroflow technology, which is an alternate method of delivery for phosphine. Development of new chemistries, such as carbonyl sulphide, such as ethyl formate, or indeed the repackaging of ethyl formate as a chemistry. So I'm reflecting on some of the stuff that, hey, we've been doing this uh, research, um, co-development and delivery for a damn long time. We've enjoyed a 10-year relationship with um, our current CRC and its previous CRC. Our current CRC is highly engaged with grains. Kenny mentioned the Grains Advisory Panel. Um, I'm privileged to be chair of that advisory panel and we have a great uh, relationship with the CRC via Grains Advisory Panel or as it's known, GAP. They have great customer focus. Um, one of the early things that GAP decided was <coughs> we actually need a grain strategy to align with what the CRC is doing and to do the things that grains think is important. So we developed, co-developed a strategy, and that strategy has paid real dividends in uh, the focus of our research. Today's about focus on delivery and end-user tools for maximum impact, and CRC remains the best option for stored product protection research. It has an excellent dollar multiplier. It has fantastic collaboration witness the um, presentations that we've had so far and that I'm sure we're going to continue with the uh, rest of the conference. Phosphine research is really important and this is what the, um, this talk is be focusing on. It's often foundation research for other grains post-harvest research. At the end of the session, um, the last talk will be from David Eaglin, regarding what is a potential game changer in research outputs. This potential game changer is, um, I guess, alternate use and application of amorphous silica for grains and for structural treatments. <coughs> Australia has a unique set of grain protection circumstances. These exist nowhere else in the world. We have a legislated nil insect detection uh, policy for exports. We export over 20 million tonne of this stuff a year, vast majority of in bulk, and probably one or two million tonnes in uh, containers. We also have a domestic trading contracts that typically specify 
nil insects. So this means that we've got to have good control methods, um, good standards, good pipelines to make sure we can actually deliver the um, nil insects to either export markets or indeed to domestic markets. Your domestic market is about, say about six million tonne a year, um, and I say your bulk markets are, are 20 million plus. We harvest and store grain in tropical or subtropical climates. This creates perfect conditions for the proliferation of insects. Everyone sort of understands that, but it's a lot different to the American situation or North American situation. It's better the farther north you go, of course, uh, where uh, they have cold winters and uh, they do not have um, nil trading policies, nil insect policies for trade. It's quite common that they sell uh, weevily grain, as it were. Deregulation has placed pressure on insect control. <coughs> Remember, I talked about progressive deregulation. Now, with that progressive deregulation, Grain Corp, for the sake of argument on exports, we've gone from three major customers to, gosh, there must be export customers. Not quite sure. I've never had them. I've never added them up recently, but there might be 20 or 30 of them. So you're dealing with a whole new lot of um, entrants, as it were. These new entrants are not always informed. When I say informed, uh, I'm talking about insect control, um, uh, hygiene, and all of this is quite problematic in killing bugs, as you'd appreciate. There's been a development and use of alternate supply chains, alternate cargo assembly methods, just-in-time delivery, and more insect remedy at the ports. In other words, more fumigation at the ports. So effectively what you've done is you've moved, you've moved traditional cargo assembly where you were dealing with a few entities into multiple entities via multiple supply chains um, and you're fixing a problem at the end of the pipe. So you've moved the treatments from the country to the ports. In this deregulated and highly pressurised environment which we work in today, competition and reducing costs, um, uh, it, it, it challenges hygiene and other quality controls. I'll talk about more, a bit more about this as we go. Okay, phosphine. This has been around since about the 1960s and it is used worldwide as a grain fumigant. Phosphine is cheap, versatile, and I've put its residue free in inverted commas. That's a uh, technical misconception. Phosphine residues do exist in wheat, but for marketing purposes, it means that there's no contact insecticides on there and it is deemed what they call residue free, as it were. We over-rely on phosphine as a grain fumigant on farm and in industry. We regularly select for resistance, <coughs> and there's reasons why we do this. One is cost, as I say, it's quite cheap, and when it's used um, well, it's quite effective. Infrastructure. West Australia is uh, set up to handle Australia's largest grain crops. Their infrastructure is almost solely uh, developed to use phosphine. So you've got the, you've, you can't uh, put a, a square peg in a round hole, as it were. 
Um, leaky enclosures, uh, that's probably one of the best reasons why you select for resistance. Um, if you can't control your fumigant, uh, you do not get the um, exposure, um, hence you, um, uh, this, you have underdosing. If you have the same infrastructure, you repeat the dose, you repeat the dose, and hey presto, you have um, uh, insect resistance. Big surprise. Phosphine's been the silver bullet for sustaining export and domestic markets. Phosphine to grains, and I know probably most of you are actually in the hort space here, phosphine to grains is even more important than fenthion was to hort, as far as I'm concerned. Other chemistries and controls, uh, they're expensive or they're market limiting because they leave chemical residues. So if your market doesn't want it, it makes it a bit problematic to treat with it and try and sell it. Additionally, um, your alternate control methods are uh, usually less effective than phosphine, if phosphine is applied correctly. Phosphine resistance is real and growing. Minaj will talk about this in detail, particularly focusing on the rusty grain beetle, which is not contained by, not controlled by most current label rates. We've got to keep phosphine useful for the long haul. We've been aware of this um, growing resistance for the last 20 years. Uh, it has now become supercharged in the last five with um, rusty grain beetle resistance. So managing phosphine resistance is grain's greatest challenge. In that challenge, remember we talked about um, having a grains strategy with the CRC. We took a very strategic direction to sustain phosphine in Australia and it's supported at least in part by the following research examples. I haven't brought up each title but I've grouped them. So it's resistance monitoring, distribution and systems approaches were covered off in at least four projects. Phosphine resistance management strategy is very, very important to develop, to deliver a management strategy for the broader industry. Informed parties like GrainCorp tend to know what they're doing, but it's very important that others who don't actually do know. Alternatives to phosphine. This has been very important projects. Again, Minaj will touch on this. Revised phosphine treatment protocols. This has been very important given that we do rely on phosphine, um, we've got to make it work. As I mentioned, it's ineffective against rusty grain beetle at most current label rates. So it was important that if you are going to use it and you are going to rotate it for purposes of resistance management, that it is effective. Also, the introduction of sulfur or fluoride as a phosphine resistance breaker. This has, been, uh, this has come along at precisely the right time as the very significant um, resistance to rusty grain beetle came along. This grain corps end user adoption. <coughs> We've adopted the following things out of the CRC toolbox. We monitor, manage and test suspect resistant insects, particularly uh, rusty grain beetles. It's just about knowing and managing your enemy. 
This is just basic sort of stuff, as it were. We've adopted the phosphine resistance management strategy, and we routinely use alternate chemistry, that's protectants and sulfur fluoride, as a phosphine resistance breaker. Very important to focus on hygiene, monitoring of systems such as sealing, inspection, having a look, reporting on it. So doing your routine QC and your routine QA, so you know what's happening in your patch. Revised phosphine and SF treatment protocols. This is an interesting one, and I will again touch on this. This allows pre precision treatment, effectively concentration versus time. Temperature comes into the equation, but let's keep it simple and talk about CTs. And that's relevant to the particular situation. When I say situation, I'm talking about the infrastructure, the pest, the, um, and the chemistry. Precision application allows for greater insect mortality and gives a grain handler uh, some flexibility. So varying C, varying T, lowest costs, it supports resistance management and importantly meets cargo timelines. You don't, it's not real fun when you have a ship at the berth um, and you might be incurring, say, $20,000 US a day for demurrage. So it's really important that you meet cargo timelines. Who else is going to use this? Others that have adopted phosphine resistance management tools from the, uh, from the toolbox include um, our other funders, of course, Viterra, CBH, some other non-funders such as uh, Grainflow, uh, Emerald, private storers, um, growers, growers mainly via um, uh, products such as uh, publications and your grain extension specialists uh, funded by GRDC, researchers nationally and internationally. Um, the work that uh, QDPI, forgive me, or whatever it's called nowadays, um, have been responsible for is um, cutting edge uh, world-class internationally acclaimed research. Chemical companies and registrants. All of the stuff that's uh, come out of this is um, supported um, registrants um, and uh, their ability to vary labels and uh, keep this stuff going. In summary, program three, safeguarding tray. There's two themes in this. Tools for technologies, tools, technologies and strategies to safeguard international markets for grain and hort products. Can't talk for hort products, but I can talk for grain. And better management of established pests. Not all research outputs bring direct value to grain. That's the nature of research. And it's the nature of how the CRC works. Grains accepts this. Not everyone's a winner. And not every project's directly applicable to you. But the CRC still is the best value um, research in town for Grain Corp and I think for grains generally. The above themes have been well supported. Strategic and end user outcomes I believe have been met. If I go back to my first slide, this is not new. We've been cooperating with the research community for well over three decades and we're used to um, having useful outputs. So this is not new, it is a new entity that is delivering these user outputs. Many of the research outputs, or indeed some of the work in progress, particularly work in phosphine and phosphine alternatives, sustain our pest management efforts. It extends the life of phosphine. 
to think that chemistry from the 1960s is still useful is quite remarkable. It allows us to meet um, our domestic and uh, export market requirements. Remember, that's well over 20 million tonne a year and it's really nice to be able to kill bugs, have a nil tolerance, meet your food safety maximum residue limits um, and have approved treatment rates by which to legally do it. Thank you very much. Uh, good afternoon, everybody, and um, I'm not going to talk much on the uh, background of uh, phosphine. Uh, uh, Philip has uh, given an excellent overview. How phosphine has um, been delivering the goods for the industry in the uh, protection of stored grain. So I'll quickly go to the next slide. It's just like a, a little uh, overview about the science behind phosphine resistance. I think uh, all my other colleague uh, at uh, EQ will be uh, talking more on that. But I'll just briefly say that um, it's well established now that uh, phosphine resistance, uh, the strong and weak resistance and how many genes involved. So two genes involved here, RPH1 and RPH2, independently both of them uh, come for weak resistance. But once they both are present, it goes to the strong, resist strong resistance level. So you can see the resistance level is around 15 times uh, compared with the susceptible uh, individual. The strength uh, is only 15 times, but strong resistance can go up to 400 and also later that it can go up to 1300 times. And this uh, comparison, you know, the bars, in the red bars, are the triphalosities. Ferrogenous, the rustic grain battle, the strength is so powerful now that all the current level rates of phosphine are failing. So we have a big challenge down there. So the impact, Phil uh, already uh, touched on it, but you know, multiple treatments, alternatives, develop an alternative is very costly affair. Rejections, demurrage, uh, of course the quality and integrity, um, and it, at the end actually it jeopardizes uh, the food security and the market access and Australia got a very big reputation of clean grain, it's, it's going to be right. So the nil tolerance is the basic principle we are adhering to, and we have a bigger challenge than the rest of the world to deliver safe, residue-free, insect-free grain to a highly competitive uh, market internationally, as well as domestic. So the research costs, uh, is research to just to maintain the standard costs a lot. It's a multi-million dollar investment globally. We have several projects running uh, which are in millions of dollars. Uh, so it's not easy to maintain the standard. So the, the, the approach, I just put some bullet points here that we, the Australians are the world leaders. I can claim it uh, that people in several parts of the world, they do not even understand what is weak resistance and strong resistance. We are the first one in the world to distinguish those two levels of resistance. So just to have a resistance monitoring program, how important it is for the industry to just timely detection and accurate diagnosis. That's the basic par parameter before we move on to manage them. 
Then characterizing, as I said, you know, just to know that which is weak, which is strong, and where, whether those resistance levels are adequately controlled with the current fumigation protocols, they are very important parameters. And we got a good handle over it. Understanding of molecular genetics, as I just said, that RPH1 and RPH2, it's all established. But now we got a lot of variants in the field. So Paul will talk more on the development of this molecular platform, which will capture almost all it will be detecting, hopefully, all those variants out there in the field. Understanding of ecology and population uh, genetics, the movements and the colonization of pests, not only in and around the storage structures, it's outside that far away in the um, bush. So uh, my colleague Greg Daglis uh, had a successful uh, six years uh, work on ecology and I think we got a lot of data from there. So at the end of the day, we have to have an integrated approach just gathering all these informations, developing alternatives, and modify the existing protocols, and all these goes go in um, a complete package. So we have a, we have a good management uh, program here, resistance management program, but we have a bad history of development of resistance in virtually all the key pest species, as you see, the historic uh, outbreak happened in Rajapatha Dominica, the lesser grand Bora in Milmeran in 1998. So later on, we kept getting all these things. The, the, the latest one is the most, uh, the most important one is the, the C. ferruginous, as I said. It's the current challenge we are facing, which is virtually uh, impossible to control with the current um, fumigation protocols uh, we have for Foskin. So that's the strongest ever so far. So I'm just uh, giving a little map which shows the red dots. It's mostly confined to the eastern Grand Belt. Uh, as usual, the western Grand Belt is free from that. Uh, they, they have a really good um, system there and um, the weather pattern and the quick uh, export of the grain, all those factors help them you know, not to have serious problems there. But we have problems. So the, as I said, the phosphine level failed. At that time, when I'm talking about 2006, the first detection occurred in New South Wales. There was no suitable alternatives available. But as we progress through our talk, um, I'll show you know, how we are in a good um, shape now with sulfur chloride. And market access was uh, on the threat and industry quest for new, new treatments. So again, that uh, comparison, you know, the, you see the current level, you know, recommends all those, you know, up to eight days to control the strongly resistant circuits, as liposolis gesticular. But it needs 18 days of fumigation at one milligram per liter at 25 degrees to get, get rid of all the life stages of cryptolysis ferruginous. So what we are doing in Australia, so this is the overview. So monitoring continues. We are having a very strong national resistance monitoring program. Uh, located in three laboratories, uh, West um, and uh, Perth and Wagga Wagga in New South Wales and our lab in Brisbane. And we have been uh, gathering this data over the last 30 years now and we got a really good um, knowledge of, you know, where the resistance um, occurring and how they're uh, spreading or 
where the new resistance coming from, all sort of knowledge. So the second important factor is the, um, the sulfur fluoride, you know, the, historically it's a, like a flour mill treatment in, you know, in the US mostly used in flour mills and termite treatments and all sort of things, building treatments. But for the first time, Australia actually took it to the next level by just developing protocols to cleaning at bulk grind. So this is the first time we started the work. Most of the earlier research was confined to laboratory only. So what we do, we de develop higher rates of phosphine as well. The beauty of phosphine is that you can manipulate the concentration and the fumigation period, the exposure period, and you still get the pest con uh, controlled. So we have that uh, luxury with phosphine. And we have another uh, a little project, uh, component in the uh, package is uh, just evaluating current standard for aluminum phosphide, uh, the tablet form of phosphate. Uh, most of the research I've present today is about the cylinderized gas, uh, gaseous fumigation. Uh, but we will present one slide about the work done by uh, Pat Collins, uh, Andrew Ridley, and uh, Phil, um, Philip Burrow on you know, whether we should change the level. And we are validating the, the protocols we develop in the lab. We are validating them through large scale, uh, industry scale. Uh, uh, field trials, uh, mostly in cooperation with Grandcorp. And then we are actually, another aspect we started first time here is the determining the time to the infestation after a successful fumigation. How long it takes a fresh population of pests to come and invade the, uh, the fumigator grain. So we are actually developing a decision-making tool based on all this integrated uh, uh, package of all the available methods and knowledge. So this is a huge table. One thing I want to just uh, show that this, these protocols were developed in our lab the first time because when sulfur fluoride, when a methyl bromide was uh, under threat and it's virtually uh, unusable uh, because of this phasing out um, as the ozone depleter. So sulfur fluoride, Dow agroscientists thought that they would have a replacement for methyl bromide so they developed most of the protocol as a 24-hour to 48-hour fumigation period, like a quick fumigant. What we established in our lab, that it's not going to kill all insects, specifically Tribolium castanium and um, Cryptolystis and Cytophilosoriza, because those, the time is not that important. Uh, time is more important than the concentration. So current level rate says it's 1,500 maximum CT. We have gone up to 3,000 CT to control some of those days if we are having a small exposure period of two days or three days. So what we found that, you know, we need at least a four-day fumigation schedule to get rid of all pests. Uh, and we can actually reduce the concentration to achieve that success. So I'll show some, uh, some slides later on about that. So these are the, the comparison. You can see that red line I draw uh, on the top of it is just like, that's the 1500 city where we can go maximum. So at four days, you can see we need 1600 to get rid of um, the tribolium and um, uh, rust red flower beetle. But as we progress with the temperature, the temperature has a good effect as well. The 30 degrees C, you know, we don't need that much of gas or that much of uh, exposure period. 
exposure period is important, but still we can contain them. Uh, that's a temperature has some good impact there. So this is a field trial we did um, in um, in Queensland, and they say we sought, uh, we uh, have the target city of 400 milligram per hour per liter uh, for a 10 days 10 days uh, fumigation um, with 1.7 milligram per liter uh, of the gas, and we use the uh, 1500 ton sorghum in a 2300 uh, cubic meter silo. What we do in the field trials, we have laboratory populations established for reference work. So they are strongly resistant, Hoskin resistant populations. So we got all those major species you know, put in cages and uh, bury them in the grain and did the fumigation. So you can see the temperature recorded there were around, you know, from 22 to 27 degrees, which was perfect for us. But you can see there is a big drop in the concentration of the fumigation where we pumped more fumigant and we got uh, it grown up. And overall, when we see the city achieved over that period of time was good enough to contain, control all life stages of all six species. So that was a very successful fumigation. And the time to reinfestation, we found that, you know, we, uh, we this is a bunker which, um, Philip was mentioning earlier, and I, I'm on the top there. So, the, when we did this work, uh, nobody has done it before. So we thought that what about you know the populations around the structure which were not fumigated and they're alive. So we did uh, sampling of those grain mass uh, before and after the fumigation, and we kept on sampling at 24 because this is a huge structure. So we had 24 points to sample and we sampled in two depths of the grain and we found that, you know, found no live individuals till three months. After three months, of course, they had um, live insects. We did some other interesting stuff that whether there will be cross resistance, you know, like the phosphine resistant phase, whether they will, they have resistance to sulfur chloride. But interestingly, these are only two slides. This is published already. You can see the, the black, uh, the solid, uh, uh, the line here, they are the strong resistance ones. They are more susceptible than the, the uh, susceptible population. So, are the phosphine resistant population. So, I think there is no, no cross resistance. So, that's a very good news for us. So, we actually did some study and we gathered data, you know, where the sulfur fluoride was used as an intervention strategy or as a resistance breaker. And you can see the 2006, seven, you know, there was a big number of incidences. Then there was a period where industry used sulfur chloride and there was a big dip. Then again, it went up. Then this period is more successful. So these are the data for exclusively where SF was used. While we are developing this graph, there are other incidences happening where SF has not been used. So it's a, an ongoing battle. So these are the, uh, the key points. It's a, sulfur fluoride is uh, now based on our laboratory and field um, results. It's an excellent candidate as a, an alternative to phosphine. Uh, mostly uh, the supporting uh, fact that uh, is there is no cross resistance, that also helps. And time and temperature have significant effect on effectiveness. Time more critical than concentration, 
at least a four days uh, fumigation is required to contain all this. And we can significantly reduce the concentration if we are going, uh, doing the fumigation at high temperatures. So we are recommending, you know, seven days exposure period as a minimum to contain all species together. And time to the infestation also three months, you know, we have that corridor before we think about applying some more uh, treatments. That's a fumigate. Uh, I'll just talk on the fumigate. Fumigate is the, the, the box, the, uh, the computerized program where you feed in all the information on the commodity, the pest species and everything, and it calculates the concentration required and the fumigation period required. So it's all the data is just secretly stored there. Nobody have access. So what we have done by developing the, those protocols, that big table I showed in the lab, lab they, the fumigide is virtually, we don't need, require the fumigide. Fumigide is not working very well in a bunk of fumigations. So now uh, sulfur fluoride is bought by uh, Douglas products in US. So they are negotiating with us uh, not to modify the fumigide. So how we actually handle the bulk storage fumigations through that program. But what we are recommending that uh, not to overkill sulfur fluoride, we are suffering from strong resistance to phosphine, so use sulfur fluoride exclusively where we have serious problems with cryptolysis. So it's using it as a break fumigant. And these are the uh, phosphine protocols we developed. You can see we developed some higher doses and Cytec is negotiating. Um, uh, they are working on a level change very soon. This is the level, the green bits are the new protocols we developed, and they are going to be uh, recommended for changes in the level. And this is a phosphine uh, field trial. We had a successful fumigation there. You can see most of the pests were controlled with a higher dose of uh, 10,080 ppm for a 12-day fumigation. I was warned that uh, I have only two minutes, so I'm rushing through the slides. So these are the two uh, silo fumigation uh, trials done in, uh, in uh, New South Wales. Uh, the passive, you can see there is no recirculation. The recirculation ones got the system there to get the fumigant everywhere. The results are very clear. With recirculation, you got more gases for the insects, and the concentration goes up very quickly and you do not, do not need very high, uh, longer exposure periods to get uh, rid of the pest. So yes, city circulation does help, and uh, we recommend everybody to go for recirculation there. Where are we now? Recognized world leaders, and only country where uh, resistance is monitored systematically, and characterization of the resistance, the strength of resistance is done, and um, we still manage our resistance very well. It's remaining below 10% over the years compared to 80 to 90% overseas countries. And we have a, a unique resistance database called ERGERT, um, and we are actually storing all the data there. We are critically analyzing them and looking at factors which are responsible for the development of resistance. So we have all these publications, and uh, you can see uh, starting from science to uh, pest management science. So whatever we do, we, um, we try to publish, and uh, we've got annual review articles as well. 
the delivery plan, uh, the national resistance management strategy, what Philip uh, was touching on. It's a network of pest and resistance managers and researchers, and uh, but it needs major changes in view of the new information gathered on sulfur chloride and the ecological information. So uh, it's the last time it was uh, modified is 2009, so we need to revamp it. And we've got the, an excellent GRDC national extension network, and we meet every year at the National Working Party on Grant Protection to discuss all these research developments. Uh, so there's a clear, uh, clear um, collaboration with the industry. The industry impact, as I said, it's uh, working very well. Uh, it's actually increasing our knowledge on a lot of things. The future, phosphine and sulfur fluoride co-treatment, uh, Paul is going to talk about it. We are thinking about using both gases to significantly reduce the pressure on both fumigants independently. And um, so Douglas product, you know, they are going to work on the fumigate, how to change them, and molecular diagnostic, so the platform is well under, underway. And we should have a monitoring program ready for sulfur fluoride resistance detection as, as, as early as, you know, whenever it is actually detected, we should be able to detect them. So this is a very large team of uh, researchers involved in this, uh, this uh, research, and you can see so many projects involved. So thank you very much for your attention. Thank you.